However, the main part of the business today is uh, obviously um, David Galbraith uh, talking uh, for us on technology and the rise of bandits warfare. If you don't know him, um, David is Professor of International Security and the Director of the Centre for War and Technology at the University of Bath. It's great to know, David, that actually war is still in the title of some centres of research in this country. Um, he's also the Conflict Theme Fellow for the Partnership for Conflict, Crime and Security, um, funded by the Arts Humanities Research Council and the ESRC. He's working on, uh, as a, a, in a research fellowship funded by AHRC and ESRC, on how technology is shaping emergent warfare, relying uh, on a variety of different approaches, multidisciplinary, the same way we do here, science and technology studies, philosophy, and war studies. Um, he's just been, uh, he's just finished in December, um, a project uh, that he's working on uh, about technological innovation um, and indeed all forms of transformation innovation, in fact. And he's the former editor-in-chief for Defence Studies uh, and European Security. And his next book, I'm proud to say, is The Routledge Handbook for Defence Studies, published this year. Do you know when? Uh, probably about five months ago. About five months ago. So looking out for The Routledge Handbook for Defence Studies, um, which will have David's name on the front. David, thank you very much indeed for coming to talk to us about this yeah. very important subject. Great. Thank you very much. I, um, thank you very much for coming today. It's, uh, it's a full house. Um, um, as I said, my name's David. And um, what I'm going to talk to you today is about um, what I refer to as boundless warfare. And uh, I think boundless warfare is going to be contentious. And I think the way that I'm going to talk about technology is going to be contentious. But, but more than anything else, I think what I'm trying to do is to be, you know, I'm, I'm trying to set out an idea, set out a hypothesis. I'm not trying to necessarily talk about policy. Uh, in, in this case, although it does have policy implications, if you were to follow the argument all the way out, and so, and and I know that in my experience, I know that some people have a very strong reaction to technological determinism, and um, and so if you do have a strong reaction to technological determinism, be prepared, um, so because it's coming. But um, the, um, um, but. But by and large, I want to start with, um, with, with three questions. And um, the three questions I'm going to come to at the very end, but I want to pop, put them out there uh, early. And the one is, if we think about the impact that technology, and I, and I mean modern and emergent technology, and some of those are actually quite old, but, uh, but, but in the way that we think about everything from UAVs to, um, to networked enablement to uh, looking at um, um, interventions in physiological spaces and neurological spaces and things like this. If we think about all those things, um, what does it mean for other things? And so, and one of the things, so I, I ask the question, what does it mean for the state? So I talk about boundless warfare here. The state is very much a bounded entity, but both in terms it's got boundaries, but also it's bounded in lots of other ways. And we talk about who is we and who, who are they and things like this. Who, who are we, rather, and who are they? Um, the, um, the second is, so what role does the state have in terms of the way that future, uh, that future uh, of war may happen, the way that it may happen? The second is, um, what role does, or what is the changing relationship between the way that we talk about power and the, what we mean by security? How is that changing in the way that we think about security? I mean, we, we've gone to traditional security, strategic security, everything to human security and so on, and all of these are, are, are what um, sociologists or some sociologists would refer to as governmentalities. They tell us what's important and, and, and in some ways what we should do about it. 
and those change over time in a way. And so, and, and I'm particularly interested in the way that they may, may change over time. And I'm particularly interested in arms control uh, as, a, as a function of the relationship between power and security. So, um, and the way that we talk about future, um, the, uh, future arms control. Um, or, or, or as I've argued in the past, uh, the end of arms control. Um, the, the third and final is how does it shape the, re or how does war and technology or boundless warfare, how does it shape the relationship between security and defense? Because one of the things that's really quite striking to, to um, those, so many of you here will, will have, um, have witnessed this in one way or another, is, is that what we mean by what we mean by national defense, what, what we mean by what the military does, what we mean by what the Home Office does, um, um, when it comes to counterterrorism, when it comes to cyber, when it comes to um, public health, public safety, all of these issues, in a sense, have some kind of uh, security element to them. And, in, and increasingly, they have a defense element to them in some way or another. Maybe that's to defend our infrastructures uh, against um, um, you know, uh, chemical attacks or or um, or cyber attacks or something like this, or, or maybe it has something to do with um, with with just the way that we um, think about what is the boundary of something like the Ministry of Defense and what is the boundary of something like um, the um, the uh, uh, something like the Home Office and, and things like that, and and how does something like the Cabinet Office try to manage that boundary? Um, that's very specific in a, in a way, but you can imagine that that's happening in many places, that the boundary between uh, what we mean by security uh, and what we mean by defense are, in a sense, kind of blurring in, in a way. And so, um, and I'm going to talk about all three of these questions in, in the way that I talk about this. Now, the one thing that I would say is that I'm, I'm going to, um, some people have a strong reaction to this too, but hopefully um, you'll stay with me. I'm going to read some, and I'm going to talk some, and I'm going to read some, and I'm going to talk some, and I'm going to do things like I'm, I'm going to do things like this. As an American, it helps me to have um, a more sophisticated thing that I can read because obviously my words are simple, right? So no, okay. Um, the um, the uh, okay. So I'm going to um, I'm going to to start, and um, I, I'd be happy to, in a sense, kind of uh, engage with questions as we go along in some way, but I realize that that may throw some people off in terms of the way that I've tried to tie things together. So if you do have any uh, questions in terms of um, what, what quite do you mean by that, or could you say that again, or something like that, please do uh, um, um, ask. Um, but otherwise, if you could hold your questions to the end. So, so war, um, what is it good for? Um, war. Um, it's, it's, it's in our news, it's in our conversations, it's in our politics, it's in our gut reactions, it's in our film, television, literature, it's in our language. You know, that war kind of proliferates through our entire, and our entire essence, really, in some way or another. War is all around us. We can understand war as pejorative in the way that we look at war, say, in Syria. Uh, as a stain on humanity, as an evil, as an ultimate sign of human chaos. Uh, we can also understand war as a human, as human expression, uh, togetherness, order, exacting. You know, it's something that where you exact some kind of order. Uh, war is a feature of our historical, contemporary, and will be our future societies. And in many ways, it comes straight to the, to the heart in terms of what we think of ourselves in a way comes straight to the heart, straight to our minds and what we think of as being important. And it's what Chris Hedges referred to and what Chris was trying to look at in, 
in, in his, his book around the, the, you know, war gives us meaning, as he was trying to say, why is war so brutal? You know, why is it, why do we, th when we talk about war, why is it so carnal in the way that it deals with the human body in some way or another? What is it about war that, 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 um, that, um, that is special? Uh, and he doesn't mean that in a good way. He just means that it sits outside of normal in some way. So, um, and then he writes this idea, this, the, he starts with this notion that war is important because it gives us meaning. And what I want to do is try to unpick that in some way and try to say how technology has the ability to interrupt this meaningfulness of war itself. Now, the, what I'm going to start with is this idea, the way, I, I, the way that uh, Rene Descartes talked about um, the, the, the mental and the material. Uh, and uh, Descartes was particularly, or, uh, you know, this, this notion of Cartesian duality. That, that what Descartes was particularly interested in is this idea that, you know, that there's this something on the outside and then, and then there's this something on the inside. And, um, and they, they are somehow co-related, kind of co-produced in some way or another. And, um, and he talked quite a bit about that, um, not only in terms of the way that I'm talking about maybe tool use or technology, uh, but he talked about it in other ways as well. But this distinction between, in a sense, what is the, on, the, on the inside and what is on the outside is, is particularly uh, useful. Now, I think what my, my, in a sense, my travel to this point is characterized by several steps in a way. About five years ago, I was particularly interested in how technology was impacting on society and politics. And, uh, and I was particularly interested in that, not necessarily from a war studies perspective or, or, or um, you know, the, what, what we're doing here. I, I, I was interested in it in a very broad way. So I, I have a project for, interesting, for interest uh, on, uh, on smart cities and the way that smart cities are interrupting the way that we do public policy, for instance, and that's with, uh, um, uh, a colleague at NTU in, in uh, Singapore. So it's not only about war. I'm particularly interested in how that's shaping society. But in particular, the, the route to, to me to, to war was trying to understand really how the shifts in the role of war, um, but not necessarily the operation of it. You know, the shifts in the sense how we, why is war meaningful in some way or another? Not necessarily in saying that um, this is the way that we could think about uh, um, 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 uh, A2AD, uh, um, area um, access denial and, and issues like this. Um, not necessarily in a sense kind of um, very um, tactical operational elements about how do you employ technology, but really why, how, how is war changing in terms of being meaningful, meaningful for us? And so the first is, is that I found Chris Dendecker's work on risk and complexity um, and the emerging global system. He, he wrote his, uh, his paper was called New Times for the Military, some sociological remarks on the changing role and structure of the armed forces of the advanced societies. Now, of course, as Robert and I were talking about just earlier, you know, the, 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 you know Chris was writing this at a time to where what we talked about war meant something else entirely. You know, I mean, it, 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 it was meaning something like, uh, what has been referred to as uh, 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 wars of the willing, you know, war, wars of choice in a way. It wasn't about uh, existential defense. It wasn't about holding on to our ways of life or holding on to this alliance in some way or another. 
um, it was about you know intervention and um, sometimes um, you know um, more direct intervention and and um, and so but in particular what he was particular what he was interested in uh, and he was interested in the British military in particularly is he was he was suggesting that there was a shift leading to risk you know that that in fact you know that we before we did we did defense and then increasingly now what we're doing is risk and um, and the, the military's responsibility in that and again it goes back to my final question which is what's the relationship between security and defense Decker would have said in that article that you know that actually the reason why we're in this position is is um, that um, the, the existential nature of war is fundamentally changing so okay we maybe with the changes in the geopolitical changes and you know Trump's election and what that means for China and what that means for Russia and what that means for a little Estonia and things like that maybe war means something different to us now um, but secondly, Tim Edmonds um, in 2006 wrote What Are Armed Forces For? The Changing Nature of Military Roles in Europe. That was published in International Affairs. And again, what he was trying to say is, is that, you know, that the, the notion of, you know, that, the, you know, I live in Somerset and you can drive around the roads of Somerset and you can see pillboxes everywhere, right? I mean, that gives you a real sense of national territorial defense in some way or another. And what he was pointing to, what Tim Edmonds was pointing to, is, is that, well, we're not really asking militaries to do that sort of thing any longer. In the sense, there's been this disconnection between territorial defense and what we're asking our, our militaries to do, even to the point to where we're even asking our militaries to go into Afghanistan and Iraq, and we're not even asking them to hold territory in the way that we would have traditionally have done. Um, and then we, and we vacillate on that, that issue. But... Um, and then finally, uh, and, uh, Tony King, uh, who some of you may know, he's at the University of um, Warwick now. Um, he, wrote a P, uh, he wrote a book called The Transformation of Europe's Armed Forces from the Rhine to Afghanistan. And again, what he was trying to say is, is that there's something, something changing about the, these armed forces, you know, with the idea that increasingly um, they were kind of going in different directions. And he uses sociological uh, ideas of production about the way that militaries do their business. And he was saying that, you know, that we see this split. It, his most recent book, The Combat Soldier, does this even more. And he talks about the, you know, this idea that we go into this notion of, of, well, we expect increasingly elite troops to do the production part. And then we, we ask others to do the, the other bits of defense that we don't think as war any longer and, and things like this. So, all this suggested to me that you know this this shift leading to risk was was particularly interesting, and one of the things that I thought that made it all possible it was technology. Uh, of course, you could say also globalization and things like this made it possible. But for me, what was particularly interesting the role of technology in that in in that uh, in that change. Now, despite the fact that I probably the way that Chris and Tim and and Tony talked about over these times, maybe they were talking about uh, war in a, a slightly different age. And I have to say, before I came here today, I don't think I'd really concretely thought about that era as a different era before. It's just, as I talk, it just seems more and more the case. As I read this, it seems to be that they were in a different era. Um, I argue here today that the shift leading to risk is technology and the rise of what I refer to as here as boundless warfare. Now, the first thing to say is, is what I mean by technology. And I mean technology uh, writ in a very large way. 
you know, that technology is not just about networks or about processors or about, um, about some kind of uh, mechanical thing. Um, I, I think I talk about it. I talk about it as anything that enables. For instance, if you read Michael Horowitz's book on the diffusion of uh, military, I can't remember the last power or something like that, or I can't remember the, the final word, but, but it, what he's particularly interested in is um, why, you know, why do some states uh, take on something like aircraft carriers and others don't? You know, why, why is that the case? Is it about economics? Well, I can't afford aircraft carriers, so I'll, I'll invest in submarines instead. Uh, or is it something else? Uh, and he argues that it's a, it's a mix of things, as academics usually do. And, um, but one of the things that he points to is the, the role of the US Marine Corps as being a fantastic enabler for the US military that allows it to do lots of things in a very flexible and agile way. And what he's particularly interested in is the, war, the, the, the notion of the warrior ethos and what that means for the, the Marine Corps as an enabler for that, in that way. So does that mean that Michael Horowitz was talking about um, uh, soldiers as, uh, as technology in a way? Well, I, I, I argue that, uh, that he is and, and that they are. But, uh, but technology also does other things. You know, it, it, um, it's, it's about geolocation, telling us where things are. It's about keeping boots off the ground. It's about tapping into your and my communications. Um, thank you. Um, it also allows for greater lethality, more pursuit, and accumulation or the dispersal of power. Um, technology is satellites, it's networks, it's processors, personal computers, it's robots all the stuff that we think of readily in terms of technology. But it's also the result of material, biological, and chemical sciences. You know, the way that these are changing and the convergence of them in some way. So I was here maybe about eight months ago and I was talking about this convergence of, of, um, of science and technology and what that meant for new technologies. Perhaps even more contentious is the combat soldier, as I said before. And Tony King's book, The, the Combat Soldier, is a, a very good example of how we have something like a martial technology, and this martial technology is constantly developing. And, and, and what uh, Tony does in that book is he looks at, in a sense, the way that militaries have evolved over time and the role of the combat soldier in that over time. It's an excellent book. Um, I recommend it. Um, the concept of the soldier or the warrior, um, even what gender theorists would talk about in terms of something like um, the notion of the warrior as a man and things like this, that's a, that becomes a technological construct in a way, something that you can employ, something that you can use to get people into the military, something that you can get them to do in a sense quite amazing things that otherwise a rational human being would never want to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's quite an amazing discursive uh, um, uh, technique, you know, it's, it's very, very useful. So here I want to talk about, in a sense, space, time, and force, because I think that these three things are going to be um, the way that we could talk about, uh, or the way that we could talk about uh, boundless warfare as being uh, impactful. So space, we could understand this in terms of distance or dispersal or concentration. It's very uh, open, um, you know, a simple discussion around space. But in particular, I'm not really talking about space always in terms of um, geographical space. So you could understand it in terms of um, you, you could understand it in terms of networks, with the idea that a network is always, uh, you know, nothing is at the center of a network. That's the that's why it's a network. Um, but so necessarily, 
um, you can imagine that there are distances within the network that make a difference sometimes. So, so there's not a center periphery to a network, but there is a um, there there are distances. So, so space uh, time we can think of you know the relationship between time one and time two. Again, that's a very uh, very straightforward. I think um, we could get more sophisticated in the way that we'd like to talk about time, but I'm not going to do that today unless you want to ask questions. And then finally, force. You know, in the way that we talk about um, kinetic force, you know, mass and acceleration. Um, all these things become increasingly um, interesting in the way that we talk about technology and current contemporary technology. And I, I recommend Peter Singer's 2012 book on Wired for War as a great example of. Of, um, of 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 just that. Anyway. So let's we'll come back to this um, as we discuss uh, kind of bounded and unbounded war in a way. So um, I use I use um, I use boundless warfare because I, I make a distinct point of whether bounded warfare can become unbounded or whether boundless warfare is something else entirely. Bounded warfare, what we would ordinarily understand is, say, the Second World War, or the First World War, or maybe even the Napoleonic Wars or something like that. We, we understand that there's some kind of, you know, we understand that there's some kind of start and there's some kind of end in a way. Now, if we think back to the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, we, we think about a beginning and an end. But, of course, the Thirty Years' War and the Hundred Years' War is not necessarily the best way to describe those wars. Uh, because the Hundred Years' War lasted longer than a hundred years, and so did the Thirty Years' War last longer than the thirty years. Um, so you know, but but historically, um, this is the way that we we think about war. Surely we only see that we're founded like that because we look back from this point in history at the time. We'll come back to that. Like yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll come we'll come back to that. Yeah. And, um, but with the idea that what the, the important thing is, is the, they, they become histor uh, historically uh, important for us as uh, bounded activities, you know, bounded notions and, uh, of historical activities in time. Um, and whether or not they were really like that or not, it's the, how they mean, you know, they're meaningful in a way f for us. And that's what I'm particularly interested in, is, is how meaningful that bounded notion is, not whether or not it was really bounded in a way. So, okay, so we can understand technology as applied, as used, as passive, you know, something that has um, some kind of agency in some way or another, you know, like a robot, uh, a, 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 um, a, a, um, a demining robot, for instance, it has ag agency, it's something that you can put into the field and it can, it can do things. Anyway, sometimes it can do things through remote control and sometimes it can do things, things through uh, artificial intelligence. Um, but the technology does not have to be uh, an agent itself. So many scholars are looking at the impact of technology on defense in the fashion, such as UAV, such as the future of air power, um, processing speeds, big data, networked enabled forces, you know, the way that command and control or C2 uh, is done. Th these are all, in a sense, ways in which the human is, is uh, or the, the soldier is becoming increasingly enmeshed in technological systems. Now, let me say here what I mean by, by um, let, let me see what I, I mean here by technology is much in the way that uh, a former researcher of mine, Manabrata Guha, uh, talks about in his, um, in his book on reimagining war uh, in the 21st century. So we largely, what, what he's doing is trying to understand technology as a system or a way of doing things. And again, maybe that points us towards something like a governmentality. 
So the ways of understanding, the ways of knowing, the ways of seeing, uh, um, the ways of governing, all, all these things are being impacted on, on um, these sorts of systems. Uh, and much of the way that we say we talk about fake news, for instance, you know, and and uh, and what kind of impact that had on on, on elections and, and other things. So, but uh, but this raises some very interesting issues around the way that we think about technology and the way that Descartes talked about the love of the system and the way that Newton talked about the value of the system. And of course, you can see John Stuart Mill after that, you know, as being a and utilitarianism being an extension of that, but. But this notion of love for the system versus uh, value of the system as being, well, it changes the way that you think about technology in this. Uh, so um, I'm going to move around a little bit. So let's take, let's take um, a, a specific example. For those that have followed me up to this point, I hope there's a few of you who have followed me up to this, um, you might see this as technological determinism. Because I talked about technology having agency in some way, and if it has agency, then it has this ability to redirect um, outcomes in some way or another, that if it weren't there, um, even human behavior would arrive at the same endpoint in some way or another. It, it has some kind time, maybe it has some kind of constitutionalizing element um, that changes reality as we know it. So in Ruth Miller's book, and, and Snarl, it's a, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great book. I can't talk about that enough. Ruth Miller, uh, it's called Snarl in Defense of Stalled Traffic and Faulty Networks. Ruth is talking about, so she uses an interesting historical example to illustrate the power of technology once applied. So the example is interesting because it, it illustrates to us what we refer to as something like dual use. You know, what, what we talk about, something having both civil and martial qualities in a way. So, um, so in the 18th century, the city of Paris was covered in paving stones to cover what would ordinarily be dirty, um, uh, come muddy streets. Uh, Paris was not the first to do this um, by, by any means, uh, nor obviously the last. Uh, but in this case, the martial qualities of the paving stones fundamentally changed the system in which prior political... Uh, political and power relations had once stood. So she shares a quote from a French civil servant at the time. So this, again, this is in the 18th century. Paving stones offer the most suitable material for the construction of barricades in the moments of civil war. It was this that in June 1848, uh, sorry, I said uh, 18th, I mean 19th, uh, the streets of Paris was covered in a few hours with a series of citadels which cannonballs could hardly demolish. Much bloodshed would have been spared on both sides if such materials had not existed close to hand. The government of the French Republic, deeply impressed with the magnitude of this danger, called the serious attention of the engineers of the Paris roads to the necessity of replacing this ancient system of stone paving by some other, which would not offer materials for the construction of barricades. So, yeah, these, it's, these, it's these things, right, that cause the problem in some way. So Miller, Miller argues that roads as a network technology, I mean, a road to network, I mean, a road to nowhere is useful to no one, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a network technology, they, roads connect. <coughs> Must be understood to play a constitutional role um, or a constitutionalizing role, a system role in which the world as we know it operates. So she states, our roads are at war regardless of the needs, desires, and activities of class uh, or, or the, the human citizen subjects. You know, they're, they, they've been built for that purpose. 
they're at war regardless of whether or not we're using them in that way. We can think about how the transformation of stone paving into barricades and weapons turns roads, regardless of the people on them, into physical environments of military activity. So this is particularly problematic, I would suggest, in the way that she's talking about. I mean, it's interesting, but it's particularly problematic in the way that she's saying that essentially um, technology, in this case, it's just the, you know, just the paving stone. Uh, technology becomes something that fundamentally changes the progress of war following. Yeah, that's this. Now, of course, if we think about the, you know, the introduction to, of um, uh, firearms, to, for instance, into, into war uh, or, um, or uh, heavy infantry uh, or, or something like that, we can say that obviously it had an impact on war in one way or another. Does that necessarily change the way that we talk about war as a, an extension of politics? Would it fundamentally change the way that, could we talk about not only the character of war uh, as being distinctly different, but we could, talk, could we even talk about the nature of war as being distinctly technological that is in some way prior to the political? Yeah. And that's, what, that's the idea that she's putting forward, so, um, and that I'm relying on here to put forward this, this notion. So. I can see that there's some discomfort with talking about Clausewitz in this way, but um, okay. Um, so let's bring this back to the, the notion of bounded and boundless warfare. Where, uh, warfare. What do we mean by bounded warfare? We could think it through two lenses. The first is the political or the democratic lens, the relationship between war and states. Uh, and that relationship has been long studied and you know, with the idea that what, you know, the, the relationship between them. Uh, the conversation goes like the chicken and the egg, which came first, do states make wars or do wars make states? Uh, the wars of France, revolutionary, Napoleonic and otherwise, are fundamental to the way that we think about France today. Uh, these wars fit as between two bookends, you know, the, the way that we could, the way that we could imagine, you know, the way that we could imagine wars as, as being. These wars fit between two bookends, they are bounded by beginnings and ends, by epics or eras. By political narratives, we understand that wars against Napoleonic France and Nazi Germany are important for us. They give us meaning, yeah. uh, even to the point to where it's very difficult for us to even understand narratives that in some way go against, you know, George Soros was called a, 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 a Jewish Nazi today. Well, anybody who could remember the Second World War just, I mean, how could you, how, how can you be a Jewish Nazi? It's just the two worlds kind of collide in that in some way or another. We'll just go back a second to your paving stone. Sorry yeah. about it. Um, you said 1848. Yes. Um, but hadn't already by that time, as a result of Napoleon's efforts, the French designed their capital in such a way that the military could easily um, attack yes. the populace. And yes. They didn't have bumpy bridges and things like that. Yes, so absolutely. How does this fit? Well, I mean, I, I think um, maybe you're you're um, you're being more explicit than than I that I sh I mean as I should have been. In fact, the argument there is, is that these roads had already been redesigned for very martial purposes. And, 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 and what's particularly interesting, and, and, uh, and, and it's my apologies, I should have been more uh, explicit about this, but the, the issue there becomes that there's something like the road itself becomes very, not only is it for martial purposes, but it has this ability to bite back. Uh, and, um, and she shows this over and over as this relationship between, between that. Um, so the... 
the key thing is is that if we think about um, if we think about this and we talk about the war on terrorism or the war against terrorism, and we can talk about um, um, the war against drugs in the, in the case of the United States, um, do they give us much meaning? You know, they, do they? You know, do they do they say the same thing? Will we look back to the war on terror and think about it in the same way that we thought about defeating Nazi Nazi Germany uh, or Napoleon or, or something like that? You know, the likelihood is we we won't. Yeah, maybe because they're not existential in the same as existential in the same way. Um, terrorism nor drugs will wipe us off the map, exterminate us, starve us. They, that is not to say that they're not politically important, you know, that we don't need to be protected from uh, terrorist activities and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, that it's, but they are not wars because they do not give us meaning. Is that the way that we can define wars even? They're wars when they give us meaning. The war on terror doesn't give us meaning in the same way. That's not to say that they don't have strategies, deployments, tactics, operations, casualties, and so on. So what is meant by boundless warfare? Warfare needs an enemy. Warfare has a start and an end. Warfare has discernible action and reaction. War has ideology. Uh, um, these are three boundaries of war that I argue becoming eclipsed by technology. Yeah, so, you know, we need an enemy. We need to start and end. Uh, we need discernible action and reaction. Uh, and we need ideology. That's four, actually. I miscounted in my notes here. So, in 1984, George Orwell imagined war bounded by enemy and boundless by time. Uh, Oceania was always at war with other, uh, with either Eurasia or East Asia. Uh, the enemy changed, but the action did not. If we hold Chris Hedges' uh, quote that war is a force that gives us meaning, then we can see why the government in Oceania and presumably Eurasia and East Asia would have used war as a means of control. But the key thing is, is if you read 1984, you realize that it doesn't give any meaning to Winston Smith. You know, it's lost its meaning. And this is particularly interesting because what we see in something like Mary uh, Dudziak's book, Wartime, uh, is an example of the way that um, this notion of peacetime versus wartime and the vacillation between what you would see in peacetime and what you would see in wartime. And, and she's a legal scholar, but she's particularly interested in the way that civil liberties are impacted by peacetime and by, um, and by um, uh, uh, wartime. And what she argues is that, as you can see, and she's just looking at the 20th century in the United States even, and her argument is, is that, as you can see that, you see something like wartime, civil liberties go down, and then peacetime, civil liberties go up. And then you can see this vacillation like a seesaw between wartime and peacetime. But our argument is, is that as you go throughout the Cold War, you get introduced to the Cold War, and the notion between peace and war starts to become confused in a way. Uh, and then eventually you get to the point to the, the post-Cold War period to where, well, largely, we're not even sure what peace and war are any longer. But needless to say, we don't see the same vacillation. We don't see the same return to what we would see in peacetime. And she's arguing that actually we live in a period of eternal wartime now. And that's why we can have really quite radical um, um, uh, restrictions that perhaps we would not have allowed before. You know, so very recently the, um, uh, the government um, has um, now the ability to, um, uh, to look in our communications like never before. Um, 
I mean, I'm not saying whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but what I am saying is, is that's a, a level of, um, that's a, um, a level, uh, or that's a, an issue around civil liberties that perhaps wouldn't have been allowed in any other time other than wartime. That's Mary Dudziak's argument, more than his mind, but it's a well worth book. Um, uh, again, Mary's, Mary's fantastic. I've never met Mary, but his, her work is fantastic. So what do we know? So when it comes to something like this, you know, and uh, a radar, you know, the, you know, and, and we're trying to find the enemy in this. Um, what if we don't know who who is attacking us? Uh, and you know, if you're thinking about something like cyber situational awareness, the idea of identify identification in that becomes actually really quite down the list of actions. Because what you really need to do is to respond. You know, you need to you need to, to control the damage. You need to see what, you need to identify the damage, you need to control the damage, uh, you need to, to react in that in some way. And then only then can you start to see who has attacked me. You know, the, 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 the issue there, and, and, and maybe we do have an idea of who did attack us in a way. You know, we're Sony, for instance, and we, maybe we have an idea about who, ta who attacked us. Uh, maybe it was the North Koreans or something like that, right? Um, but maybe we don't, you know, in particular, we could imagine how something like cyber attacks are, are increasingly being, uh, are, are increasingly difficult to, not only are they difficult to pin down, but the issue of plausible deniability comes online. And the Russians say, well, I don't know about this fancy bears thing, but it really doesn't have anything to do with us. And, and the United States says, no, you intervened um, and you, you, you hacked the, uh, you know, the DNC accounts, and then, you know, you, you publicize this to have a big impact on our elections in a way. Uh, and so the idea is then becomes, it becomes, maybe there is, you know, maybe there's a person in Whitehall that knows who has done that, whether that's politically significant or not, or whether it's used as a, a matter of fact or truth is neither here nor there. And so the issue of the enemy, you know, or, or the, the other who's attacked us becomes problematic. So let us think of it, and, and, and that becomes, so let's return to Clausewitz, if, if you allow me. So um, let us think of this relationship and how we think about war itself as an extension of politics. So uh, Karl von Clausewitz states that war is a continuation of politics, okay? Uh, others, including Christopher Coker, uh, talks about war as a function of human nature. I, that, that sounds very similar to me in a way, you know. And and um, uh, and, and Christopher Coker's book, Warrior Geeks, a great book. Uh, um, I recommend it. <laughs> I've said that to all the books. But um, the um, but in Warrior Geeks, you know, he asks himself the question of whether we ever imagined that robots will do all the fighting for us, and eventually, what we can do is just kind of sit back, let other people do the fighting, and um, and uh, we can, um, they destroyed all of our machines, but by and large, we can just remain quite cozy where we, where we are, in a way. And he argues that no, that that's not going to happen. And the reason it's not going to happen is because war is part of human nature itself. That the more and more you take humans out of war itself, the more and more that war will try to pull humans back into it again. And that, that's just the nature of, of human nature. So, okay, uh, I don't know that I'm making that argument today, but I think it's an interesting argument. So we can refer to, to um, we can refer to both you know the notion of of, um, of uh, 
politics, as an extension of politics, and as an extension of human nature, as something like, um, you know, at the center there, you get the political human. The human is kind of fundamental to that in some way or another. A social, you know, it becomes a social function. You know, a political function becomes a social function. And within this political dynamic, we can think of three determinants um, of, um, of war itself, and something that I've already kind of pointed to in a way. One, this is the way that we think about information. Uh, another is the way that we think about citizenship or uh, individual relationships to the state. And finally is the notion of decision-making. So for Clausewitz, the, um, the political function existed within what he refers to as the, the trinity. And I suspect that you, you know this relationship between the state, um, uh, society, and, uh, and the military and so on. Um, and it can be seen in particular as this, um, the notion that war must remain subject to the action of, a, uh, of what he refers to as superior intelligence and has a political purpose in some way or another. And that's why, even though we're particularly worried about people having the ability to, say, 3D print handguns, we're not overly worried about it. I mean, we're worried about it, but we realize that not everybody has an interest in going home and printing their 3D handgun and going out and killing people. That, in a sense, there's some kind of political element there that actually restricts people from being uh, murderers. Right. I mean, there's there's a there's a there's there's a there's a political something there that stops people from just being self-destructive or, or destructive towards society. So maybe that's the case. Maybe politics really does um, uh, make a difference. So maybe maybe I'm not uh, overturning Clausewitz, but but herein lies a problem for us and the paving stones in particular. What role does technology have in political purpose? Um, surely a rioter has to choose to pick up the rock in order to throw it, right? You know, I mean, that's a political, that's a, that's a human action, if you will. You know, that, a human action to throw, to throw a rock uh, at the police or, or, um, um, or an RPG or, or something like that. You know, I mean, to talk about, I mean, to, to take it from street violence to, to, to war. Um, the... Um, the political pur purpose is the factor, the driver that leads the rioter to make the choice, yeah, that, um, um, to be an agent to violence. Uh, the conception of violence or warfare in our case requires a political human, you know, the political act in some way or another. So at the moment, that stays right within what we would imagine uh, Clausewitz would tell us. But, um, but, um, but in particular, this, let's assume that our conception of the political human, or at least the agency that he or she poses, is limited. That actually, that, that there's a, a limit to how much can be explained by politics. In this conception of the political human, we can only have technical objects, right? We have the human, who's the key agent or actor, and then we have these technological objects. And um, the, you know, the human cannot see well enough, so what... He gets an object, which is you come blurry glasses. And he's taken on the uh, on the the tool. So this is interesting for us because we realize that the political um, the the human has to stop somewhere. You know that that in my case it's the glasses or the the watch or the phone or something like that. Uh, um, so in this conception of the political human, we can we only have technical objects, not technical agents. Uh, the technical agents of war, like roads, like IT networks, like UAVs, are themselves enablers or agents. 
and, and this reminds me of Laurie Calhoun's book, We Kill Because We Can. Um, and um, and it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting book. Um, and I mean that in the British way of interesting, as opposed to the American way of interesting. Uh, it's, a, uh, it's an interesting book. And, um, and this argument largely is almost a technological determinist argument, that we have this ability to, to hover and to kill people at will through the use of drones anywhere in the world. And because we have this ability, we will continue to see uh, threats in that way. We see threats in that way because we have the drones. Not because we did, it's not that we see the threats first and then we develop the drones. So, so um, but it's an interesting, controversial uh, book, I would say. But let's, so information as it is comes into being when data is processed, you know, when it's given meaning, when it's appropriated in some way. Its relationship to bounded warfare is, is uh, quite, uh, quite pronounced, you know, that this idea that information becomes fundamental to the way that we did war in Afghanistan and Iraq. Information was fundamental to the way that we looked at PowerPoint presentations in the morning, or, or the way that intelligence work was done, or the way that we understood human terrain. Uh, information was going to be what the RMA delivered, right? the revolution in military affairs. It, it was an information revolution. Citizenship as it is determines the political you know what 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 is what's important you know it sustains the political we know who we are we know what is sacred you know this this notion decision making um we can think about in way in the way that i refer to decision making as much in the way that hugh strong uh talks about strategy about in a sense making sense of the political you know about what is to be done in some way so boundless warfare challenges a political theory of warfare and this of, of Clausewitz's ideas um, in, in terms of trying to posit something like a technological theory of war. Now, what if we think about a warfare not as a political behavior, but as a technological behavior? Where does this leave the human in this? Can we transpose the, the political human uh, with, the with the technological human? What do we even mean by this, right? Because it, maybe politics is technology and technology is politics, but okay. What do we mean by this? We don't mean cyborgs or robots, you know, this idea that we take a 100% a, a human and we add a bit of kit to them and they become a cyborg in a way, but we mean something else. Let's, let's go back to Ruth Miller. Uh, she charts how English metaphors began to change from the 19th to 20th century. And I have to say, if you've read Tom uh, Ridd's book uh, on the, the uh, history of cybernetics, um, you, you'll have the same uh, ideas. So she indicates where before we had biological metaphors for human behavior. And if you do read um, um, uh, Renaissance uh, and, and, and uh, Enlightenment philosophy, you'll see much more a biological reference to the way that we as societies work. But she says that as we go more and more towards the middle of the 20th century, our language begins to change. And more and more, it starts to be changed not by biological systems, but by information systems. So the organism, human in our case, was no longer being understood as a single point or a single agent, but instead was being understood as a message. So the way that we thought about town planning, the way that we thought about public administration, the way that we thought about being, doing big policy, uh, grand policy, became much more about um, about obscuring the human in this. So as communication, in other words, human value becomes increasingly roped into the system of communication, 
it becomes a um, it becomes a, a different it becomes not biological at all it becomes an information system. So others have talked about this in terms of the impact on cybernetics had on wide range of discourses. Again, Tom Ritz's book is a great example of that. If anything, information theory allowed us to think about how the system works together, about you, how you can do big policy and these things come to come come together. And we're talking about policy that actually we we've never had to you know um, with with this increase of information, um, uh, with the way that we think about um, uh, millions and millions of people living in London or something like this. All of a sudden, the way that we do the way that we do things just fundamentally has to change, and it changes as informi information grows. So, and if you a great example of that is Cesar Haldago's book on um, why information grows. Um, so, in fact, uh, Ruth Miller illustrates how they continue to view information theory through a subjective humanist perspective. You know, in many ways, it was about an information system. It was about the cybernetic system, you know, the network system. But she argues that this, the human was an increasing, you know, it was part of that in a way. That we can talk about the battlefield or the, the, the space, but we have these reference points, these individual reference points, which are soldiers within that in some way or another. And, the, and as much as we would like to talk about it as being networked and something like that, the argument is, is that by and large, we still talk about uh, networked enablement or, or network-centric warfare. The human is still a fundamental part of that in some way or another, and, and, um, which is one of the, the big critiques of um, network-centric uh, network warfare. So what does this mean um, for, and this mean in terms of um, the, um, the political frameworks? So she argues, they were transforming the machine into a human, if a digitized human, and the physical network into a communications network. They were obliterating the machine, but actually, rhetorically, just as the machine was taking on a greater and greater role in the city uh, or in the battlefield, it's, um, it was becoming, they, they were essentially repositing the human in that. And as much as we were understanding that essentially what was, you know, that as we were going to having lines and lines of men with guns facing with one another and converging, and as more and more the human, in a sense, came behind what was fundamentally a, a tank battle or, or an aerial, aerial battle, we had big machinery to, in a sense, to change the dynamics of war itself. But the way that we thought about war um, and the way that we thought about politics became much more about the human. She has this very interesting notion of, um, uh, of, um, of traffic. You know, that uh, tradition, before we had car, before uh, traffic as a word existed before we had cars. So with the idea of traffic used to mean um, uh, people. There's too much traffic on this pavement. You know, where, where in a sense, once we had cars, it started to be applied to cars. And the reason it started being applied to cars is that you had too much traffic. So you needed to move the traffic out to the sides, onto the pavements, off the streets or the roads, and let cars drive on them. But then all of a sudden, cars started uh, doing the same thing that actually humans used to do. They found it difficult to use the road network. Uh, and, and, um, and the argument there, and so this notion of what used to, um, used to be a human uh, uh, category, traffic, became applied to to the machines themselves, to the network itself, in a way. But fundamentally, we still understand the traffic is affecting us. You know, it's a human agent. You know, I mean, it's, people get in their cars and they decide to drive in some way or another. Forget about the car. The car is neither here nor there. It's tied to the road. Forget about the road. The idea is that people decided to get in their cars and drive on that road. And she's arguing, wait a second. 
The car and the road fundamentally change your options. It reconstitutionalizes reality for you in some way or another. Maybe that says something about Laurie Calhoun's arguments around we kill because we can. If we have the technology, it, it repurposes our reality in some way. It resets our reality. So realize I'm, I'm going over time, so I'm going to try to move forward. OK, let's talk about um, known knowns. Remember the known knowns and the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns and so? OK, known knowns. We live in a world where networks continually take over our world. They are seen as being applicable to everything, you know, in uh, IoT and things like that. Um, uh, and does anybody have an Alexa yet? So, I mean, as an example um, uh, of that, um, ho hopefully all of you know Amazon's Alexa, what I'm referring to. Um, actually, it'd be great if most of you didn't know. But anyway, um, so they, they are seen as being applicable to everything, but not just information technology networks, but road networks, as we've discussed, but also community networks, body networks. You know, everything that, you know, the measure me uh, society, everything is being, in a sense, talked about in terms of networks. S complexity is key to our understanding of emergent warfare, the way that we talk about data science and how that fits into a notion of complexity and, uh, and nonlinear causality is the way that we talk about everything from the impact of pharmaceuticals to the way that we talk about uh, the way to get smart cities working and so on. We talk about them through a networked dis uh, uh, discourse. The applied technologies that make networks possible are fiber optics, mobile batteries, processor size and speed, low orbit satellites, and, 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 and fundamentally us. You know, we're, we're a fundamental part of that network. We have become me mechanized ourselves in the way that we seek to network our tasks. We tap in, we add on, we hack, and, and any of you with small children who, um, who do play uh, on, on iPads or Xboxes or something like that, you'll realize that they call everything a glitch. You know, the bus hasn't got here yet. There's a glitch. The bus is not here yet. It's a very interesting kind of transfer of what is a, an IT language into, into well, material reality. Yeah, that, um, it's a glitch that I'm going slightly over. Um, so... What are the known unknowns? So we know that in a sense a lot of things are changing in a way. You know, the, the impact of networks is going to be, is, is impacting on the way that we, we do normal things. Um, Moore's law tells us that the number of transistors on a dense integrated circuit board will double, double every two years. And that was seen like Moore's law was going to come to an end. And all of a sudden, now we have new uh, materials, uh, material sciences that allow us to continue Moore's law going even further. History has shown that, law, uh, that the Moore's Law uh, is apt in anticipate, anticipating process power. But what was particularly interesting, even though that we realize that process power is important, we still can't have a vision in the future of what that process power is going to mean for the future of our technology in any way. We can't say, let's talk about Moore's Law as it exists in 20 years' time. What is technology? What are we going to be able to do with that kind of processing power? You know, that the ability for us to forecast in that way is, well, is difficult. So Christopher Coker is illustrating this in his, in his uh, book, Warrior Geek, and he's talking about science fiction as being a, a rich source of how we might use technology in the future and how science fiction tells us that this type of processing power is going to be applied. Christopher Coker is telling you to go look in science fiction and 
and, and, and that. Processor speeds can allow greater artificial intelligence, whether it's like us or whether it's like um, the, the Hoover uh, robot, you know, um, which in turn relies on autonomous decision making you know, or arithmetic decision making. Uh, the change in genetic material sciences, microengineering, also open, open up a world of distinctly bespoke, tailored, altered applications. Gene therapy is one thing, but gene warfare is quite another. It feels as if we are on the birth of a new kind of molecular science. You know, that's the way the scientists are talking. Sciences that will allow us to interact with physical world in a totally different way. You know, um, any of you that have experienced VR and think, oh, this is amazing, virtual reality, this is an amazing kind of way that we could experience things that we've never thought we could experience before. You know, the, the notion of individual, you know, and how things kind of suck you into it in some way or another. I'm, I'm veering off to the matrix, so I'll, I'll leave that. Um, let's talk about the unknown unknowns. Um, we're at a loss to anticipate those technologies on whose science has yet to be discovered or engineered. We know that techno-scientific changes have a tendency to support existing networks and fundamentally to eventually overcome them. So we understand that uh, roads, you know, that traffic, uh, that human traffic was a problem, so we pushed it out to the side to let roads, cars go faster. Then cars become a problem. So we start looking at alternatives to the road network. And then we start, and you know, we, what we do is we establish networks and then we try to transgress networks and then those networks get transgressed, and then those networks get transgressed. Maybe that's a function of human nature in some way or another. So, um, but drones are a, a typical example of that. You know, how do we defeat space and time in a way that makes a difference? Finally, let's go to something that Zizek refers to as unknown knowns. Yeah. We know that there are lots of things happening out there, that there are quite amazing things happening out there. We, we know that the Chinese military are doing some quite amazing things. And sometimes we even know that they refer to them as something like the assassin's mace. But, and we have ideas of what we think the assassin's mace is, but we're not 100% sure about what that is. So we know that it exists. We, we know that over 4 million people in the United States have security clearance. Now, there's a lot of people in the United States that know things. Yeah, and sometimes, as we see, that comes back to haunt <laughs> with Edward Snowden and so on. Right? So this has an impact in the way that we would talk about. Now, I, I'm not going to go into this, but what's particularly interesting is, is that Ruth Miller tells us that it has all these things to say about what we talk about in terms of vitality, liberty, and uh, immobility. You know, that we're giving things life vitality that never had life before. So we're creating, you know, in many ways that may be artificial intelligence, but maybe in some cases that's shaking a bottle of fizzy water. You know, you're adding information to that bottle. You know, that, in, but you could imagine that written in different ways, written in different ways. Um, mobility, this ability to go beyond um, our boundaries, you know, that Fundamentally, not, you know, what's important in mobility is not the ability to get there, to cross boundaries, to, to move fast and so on. But more importantly, what's really uh, uh, fundamental is the ability to stay there. Permanence. You know, what was not, and you know, Stuxnet was fantastic. Not because it actually zoomed from Israel and the United States and so on and hit something. But Stuxnet was important because it just sat there. 
You just had Stuxnet on a USB and it just sat there for ages. And we were just waiting for someone to plug in that USB with Stuxnet on it. Stuxnet was important for shutting down that um, the Iran Iranian um, um, uh, fuselage. Not because, um, not because um, that it was in some kind of kinetic way being shot at the fuselage, but because it had the ability to just stay there, to hang out. And of course, that's what drone operators say. What's important is, is that you can sit there for days and watch someone's behavior and be able to really verify the things that actually you've never been able to verify in the same way before. Um, okay, so what does this mean for our questions? Well, the role of the state is interesting because it has an impact on the way that we may talk about, you know, the, 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 something that's increasingly bounded, you know, something like the state is, 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 being, is encountering something that's increasingly unbounded. So we could think about something like the power of production, you know, is being distributed, you know, the, the ability for additive manufacturing or 3D uh, printing is quite amazing. You know, the future and how that's impacting different companies is quite amazing. Lockheed Martin says, no, we're still going to make things. BAE says, we're going to print things. Actually, we're going to give you, you're going to buy the ideas from us and you're going to print them. We don't want to be in the material making business any longer. And here, I've brought some examples. You know, that's the way that BAE systems are talking about. But totally different business models because they realize that the power of production uh, is, uh, is becoming greater while at the same time, information is becoming cheaper. That's, um, that's, that's interesting. And, and many of you will uh, have seen the Matrix films, and you remember that one of the characters doesn't know how to fly a helicopter. So she asks, could you please download how to fly this helicopter? Uh, I think it's in, in the first Matrix. And, and said, so can you please download how to, and then you know, takes uh, downloading the buffer speed in the Matrix is, is, uh, is, is slow, but uh, it's almost there. And finally it downloads, and now she knows how to fly this helicopter. That's quite amazing. Uh, same thing in Rogue, and in Rogue One, you saw that the robot knows, I mean, you know, how does he know where to go? He goes in, and he plugs in, and he downloads it, in a way. So information is becoming increasingly cheaper as it expands. Those two things have a big impact on the way that we talk about, in a sense, the power of the state to be able to make decisions about uh, research and development, about um, uh, the way that economies grow or don't grow, and things like this. So, um, in many ways, maybe that's talking about globalization from a different perspective. You know, it's not about international trade agreements, but it's about this this notion of information and production power. Um, coming from a different direction. Now, the reason I mention that is because it has a big impact on the way that we talk about power and security or arms control. So the way that we talk about cyber, the way that we talk about biochem, uh, the way that we talk about robotics is being fundamentally challenged. Um, and then finally, this relationship between uh, security and defense. You know, what role do militaries have within this? Militaries complain that the convergence of security and defense makes their job more difficult because it, it thins out what they can do well with issues that are shared by other agencies and departments. Not only that, but it forces them to take on logics that don't put them at the center. You know, and that's particularly difficult for them. So, but the fundamentally, it poses a problem. 
It uh, fundamentally poses a problem, as I suggest here, for all of us in terms of coming to terms with what technology means for society and fundamentally what it means for the future of war in the way that I've explained it. Thank you very much. Thank you.